Thanks for downloading this podcast from City Church Leeds. You join us as we're journeying through the book of John. We hope that it blesses, encourages and inspires you. So what we're doing today is the continuation of where Ben left you last week. So John chapter 6, and we'll start reading at verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So, let's, we'll walk through this passage of Scripture. I won't read the whole lot right out front, but we will read a little bit and stop and comment on it until we work through it all. So, Jesus, um, of course, has walked on the water from one side of the Sea of Galilee to the other. And uh, the people can't figure it out because there's a boat that is left where he fed the 5,000, and they're assuming that he's there but actually, he's walked on the water, and he's now on the other side, and they come across to Capernaum, and they see him, and so they're saying, well, basically, how did you get here? And then he turns to them and says, the reason you're looking at for me is not because of uh, the fact that uh, you're wanting supernatural miracles, it's the fact that uh, you were fed is the fact that I gave you food. That's why you're looking for me. That's why you're seeking me. But he says, it's really important that you don't look for the food that perishes, but the food that gives eternal life. And their question then is, well, what do we need to do to get that food? And that's where verse 29 comes in. This is the work of God, that you may believe in him whom he has sent. Believe is a real key word in the Gospel of John. In fact, it was up there just before I came up to speak the word believe. Believe is mentioned 100 times in John's Gospel. And clearly, John, in bringing, in writing his Gospel, is writing it with the intent that people may believe who Jesus is. Jesus himself says, uh, the work of God is that you believe in him who he has sent. Another word that's really quite frequently used, this one is used 39 times in the gospel, is the word life. So he who believes in him has life. And so, life is a real big issue, and the reason why John actually wrote this gospel, he says, in at the back end of his book, 
is, therefore many of the signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So to believe in him that you may have life is a key thread that runs right through this gospel. And so Jesus addresses these people that have come to him and are looking for him, and he addresses them with the key issue that they believe in him not just because he feeds them, but that he is the one that's sent from the Father, that he is sent from above. Now, this begins a conversation with these people that um, leads into some stuff that some people wish wasn't in the Bible. Because the way that he speaks about himself, it's a bit gruesome for some. But we need to get there and read through it because the words are in red and Jesus did actually say this. So let's look at verse 30. So they said to him, what then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Let's just stop there. This is staggering that they would even say, what sign are you going to do? Because he has just fed 5,000 men plus women plus children with a few loaves of barley bread and some fish, and they're going, show us a sign. The reason why so many people were following him across the other side of the lake is because of the miraculous miracles he was doing of healing people. So he had already done a whole load of miraculous signs. Then he feeds 5,000 men plus women plus children. And these guys have the audacity to say, well, hey, if we're to believe in you, show us a sign, which indicates the hardness and judgmental nature of their own hearts. So this is the kind of people that Jesus is dealing with. He's dealing with a bunch of skeptics. A bunch of people that want to be utterly, utterly, utterly convinced, even though he's done so much stuff amongst them. So this is the context. All right, verse 31. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. Just stop there a moment. Their history goes back to the law. Their history goes back to Moses and the law being given to him and Moses bringing the people out of Egypt. And they trace their history back to Moses and they very much uh, sit in the seat of Moses as the lawgiver. They stand in law. This becomes their paradigm for everything that they're thinking about. Well, Moses give us manna, what are you going to do? And the reality is that one greater than Moses was amongst them, but their mindset was such that they were missing what God was doing in their generation. 
And we can have a certain mindset at times that takes us back into our past when God is doing something right in front of our eyes in our day and in our time. But because it doesn't come in the way that we expect it, we can miss it when God is doing something very real and very powerful. I'm saying to you, God is doing some very real and very powerful things in our day. But we can have a mindset that's so taken back there that we expect it to be the same or similar, and God is just doing some amazing things. Like this dear lady who gets healed of carpal tunnel that I just shared about. Why am I sharing that? This is the kind of stuff that God is doing, and, and many more things besides. Okay, so let's pick it up again. Verse 33. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. So Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me. But yeah, let me just read that again. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. And so what he's pointing out to them here is this. Even though he's done all this stuff, the miraculous the demonstration of the Father's heart to them, they were largely an unbelieving group of people. And this is the point that Jesus is making that he is requiring of them that they believe who he truly is, who the Father has made him to be, and what the Father has made him to be. And so he takes the bread of life imagery and links it to himself that it's not, no longer about the law and Moses, but it's about Jesus and this new environment of grace that he's bringing. And it's no longer Moses being the yardstick, but Jesus Christ himself is the yardstick of heaven. He comes out of the Father's heart from the Father's heart, and he becomes the bread of life. They're no longer to be reliant on the law. They're no longer to be dependent on Moses. Jesus becomes the new standard. All right, let's pick it up and say verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. I myself will raise him up on the last day. Here's the fabulous thing. He says, I have come that they might have life. Now, this word in Greek is the word of a lady's name that we use these days called Zoe. Zoe is 
the kind of life that God has. Zoe life is the kind of life that God lives. And it's contrasted to another Greek word for life, which is bios. Now, anybody with a quick brain will realize that bios is the root word for our word biology. Bios is natural life. Bios is life on a human level, on a natural level, if you will. Zoe is supernatural life because it's the God kind of life. And he said, I have come that you might have Zoe life, the life that God lives, I want you to have. And the only place you're going to get it is by coming to me because I am carrying life just like my heavenly father carries life and I want to give the life to you. So Zoe life becomes available to us in Jesus Christ. Eternal life, if you wish, becomes available to us. And the fabulous thing is that eternal life starts now. You don't have to wait till eternity. So already in this mortal body, we can experience Zoe eternal life. We can experience the quickening power of the Spirit, which then causes us to enjoy supernatural life now. And the benefit is, in the last day, he's going to raise us up. There will be resurrection of my body. There will be a, an immortal body that I will have, a spiritual body. And that's all part of the package of Zoe life. So this is the fabulous deal. He's come to give us life. He wants to share us to share in his incredible life. All right, let's pick it up in verse 41 again. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes, notice that word believe again, has eternal life I am the bread of life. He's saying, stop feeding off the old manna. Stop feeding off yesterday's stale bread. I have come down out of heaven. I am freshly baked. I am the bread that satisfies. I am the bread that is good to taste because of the overflowing supernatural life of God. If you believe in me, you will eat of this bread and you will have life that's abundant life and that you can be a blessing to your generation because you fed on me. And this offer of Jesus being the bread of life 
carrying the aroma of heaven that we might feed on him and therefore carry heaven's aroma through our lives is still open to everybody, even in the 21st century. Huh? Verse 49, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that the one who may eat of it may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread, freshly baked, smelling wonderful, appetizing, nutritious, beneficial. He is the freshly baked bread of life coming out of heaven, and if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever, and the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So believing in him, eating of him, is just this key issue. Now, this is where he gets into some stuff that some people go too much. This is just taking it too far, Jesus, so we're going to go where he went. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Okay. Clearly, this is quite deliberate of Jesus to speak in this way that would be, naturally speaking, utterly offensive. Cannibalistic, even. One of the things that I know about the Lord, He does it here, and He still does it in our day, is that He is not averse to offending our mind, to expose our heart. To say things that are offensive to us, to see how we will respond. He did it when he deliberately stood in front of the temple and said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. He could have said it somewhere else. But he said it in front of the temple. Of course, he was referring to the temple of his own body. But everybody thought he was referring to this temple and go arrogant so-and-so. Who does he think he is that destroy that temple and he can build it in three days? Now, that's what the Pharisees thought. And they tried to crucify him because his words were offensive, but it exposed something in their hearts. The Holy Spirit, when he moves, 
does things in a way that we wish he wouldn't do. But the Holy Spirit is the Lord. And he has the right to do whatever he wants. And there are some people that want church to be so disinfected that nobody can possibly be offended and God doesn't work like that. He really likes sometimes to offend so that the heart is exposed. And I admit for one that I've been offended by what the Spirit has done and I've had to repent of it because the Spirit is the Lord and He can do whatever He wants. And for years, I was offended by what had come out from the move of the Spirit in Toronto. Why are people clucking like chickens in church? Why are they barking like dogs? Why are they roaring like lions? And the reality is, it was prophetic symbolism but because of my offended mind, which revealed my wrong heart, I couldn't get it. But being childlike, you can get it. Why do cocks crow? Wake up, it's a new day. And what is more impactive to say in the usual way, yea, says the Lord, wake up, it's a new day, or for somebody under the anointing of the Spirit to go, cock-a-doodle-doo, and that arrests you. Now talk about creativity. <laughs> Breaks the mold. Again, why do dogs bark? Because somebody's come into the house. Somebody is coming to his house. The child can get it. That's why Jesus says you've got to become like little children to enter the kingdom. And there's much more of the kingdom to enter. It requires our heart to be childlike and unsophisticated and malleable and responsive to him to enter the more that he wants to bring us into. But if our minds are fixed and we've already been established in what we believe is the right, then it prevents us from being humble to walk into the new thing that God wants to bring us in. And so in relying on Moses, they didn't realize that the one that Moses spoke about, I will raise up a prophet for you, standing right in front of them and because of their blindness they missed the one who Moses talked about extolled who Moses was but completely missed Moses's heart to bring somebody who was from the father's heart and so because he spoke about eating his flesh and drinking his blood they were grossed out by it and completely missed the point Eating and drinking for Jesus here are metaphors for believing and abiding. We've already seen that. Look at verse 35. 
I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Eating and drinking is a metaphor for believing. Let's go to verse 56. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Eating and drinking are metaphors for believing and abiding. Jesus takes this concept of abiding in a later chapter, in chapter 15, and talks about the vine and the branches, and it's just so beautiful. But abiding means that uh, God intended us just to have a shared life with him. He wants to share all of our lives with him, and he wants to, him to share all of his life with us. And he says here in verse 56, he who abides in me and I in him. And simply to say that uh, being in him is my place of identity and security. In him, I have become a son of God because he's a son of God. He gives me the right to be a son. I'm not just a son of my father, I'm a son of my eternal father. That's my identity. My security in is who he's made me to be. In Christ is your identity. In Christ is your security. Christ being in us is the potential of heaven coming to earth. So he is in us and he wants out of us. And so this is the delight of this shared life and abiding that I receive true identity and because of access to him by the Spirit, I can now give away heaven's realm that I've come to embrace. This is dynamite. Christ in you, the hope of glory. The hope of glory in this world is Christ in you. And you don't have to wait until you get more gifts. There's all, you've got Christ in you already. Give away what you've got. And as you give, he will multiply it and expand it. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, just to say, and I'm going to come to a close. Eating and drinking is also prophetic about the new covenant. Remember at the Last Supper, he says... This is my body. This bread is my body that's given to you. Eat it. This cup is my blood. Drink it. This is prophetic about our shared life with Jesus. Our communion with him and our communion with one another. And so I couldn't speak about this passage without leading you into communion. So I guess the official talk has stopped, so I don't know how I did, but it's about 30 minutes. But what I want us to do is not be constrained by the clock right now, but really to experience communion. This abiding, this believing.
I'm, I'm Protestant in my background. Probably most people here are Protestant in their background. Protestantism, of course, the root of it is protest. There was a protesting against the Roman Catholic Church. It is my deep conviction that the protest threw the baby out with the bathwater. There were things that Protestants ditched that they should never have done. I'm not saying that the Roman Catholics were completely right, but to ditch all that they did wasn't right either. It was a complete overreaction. The Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church back then was full of superstition. And what the Protestants did was to, in dismissing superstition, they also dismissed the supernatural. And so Protestantism became very cerebral. Became based upon what you could understand. And let's be honest, God is so big, he is beyond our understanding. He is just amazing. And I believe in our day, God is restoring to the church things that we've jettisoned and lost. And two of the things that he's given us, two of the what the Protestants call symbols of the covenant are baptism and breaking of bread. But in most Protestant churches, these things have become purely external and purely symbolic. But I would like to say to you that both these things are more than symbols. There's a spiritual dynamic and transaction that takes place in baptism and in breaking of bread that's not simply external. It is spiritual. It is a real transaction from the supernatural realm. That's why in 1 Peter 3, Peter says, baptism now saves you. It's in the Scripture. The act of baptism is not simply a symbol. There is a salvific effect, an expression of salvation that takes place in the process of baptism. In the same way, when we have bread and wine, I'm not suggesting this bread becomes the body of Christ, but there is an opportunity in what we're about to do that we can feed and drink on Jesus whereby there's a supernatural transaction taking place. It's not simply an eating and drinking. If we approach this by faith, we can receive divine sustenance. We can receive divine empowerment through eating bread and drinking wine. So there's a scripture I'd like to point you to just before we do that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 16. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing 
in the body of Christ. This sharing is not something that is intellectual and distant. This is something that is spiritual and connected. So what is of Christ I share in? And in drinking his blood, the wine, there is a sharing in the blood of Christ. What does that mean? Well, it means that by his blood, sin is no longer an issue for me in my life, neither for you. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world by his blood. Sin consciousness should not be the focus of our lives. Sun consciousness is now the new paradigm of our life. Certainly, under the old covenant, sin consciousness was the way that they lived. So they had to go to the priest and they had to present their offering. And their consciousness of sin was being reminded of every time they brought an offering. Great news in the New Testament is this. The new covenant is the one offering has been sacrificed forever. We don't need to keep bringing offerings so that instead of being sin conscious, we can be conscious of the one that's borne away our sin and that by his blood, I can be freed from sin. And by his blood, here's the beautiful thing, I can have life because the consistent testimony of Scripture is the life is in the blood. Therefore, when I take the blood, I'm receiving his life. And as much as I have eternal life, I can receive new life today just in taking communion. I can receive life of Jesus. I can receive the life from the Spirit. As I eat and drink by faith, I can receive life. Goes on to say, verse 70, Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. This loaf of bread was once united. It was once one loaf. It's now broken into pieces. But the reality is that as we take of the bread, we are part of the one body. We belong to him and to one another. I'm no longer disassociated. I'm no longer separated. I belong. And if I belong, it means I'm valuable. I have a part to play. This morning, not everybody has stood out here and said something, but that doesn't mean to say that everybody doesn't belong and is valuable. Because it's not about what goes on here on a Sunday morning. It's what happens 168 hours in a week. And all of you who are in Christ belong and are valuable. His blood, the price of his life is on your life and therefore, you are important. And when we break bread and drink wine, we are affirming the value of his heart and his value system on our life. I am loved. I am purchased. I belong. I have a part to play. 
And so being joined to him and being joined to one another, I begin to recognize others through his eyes. Paul says, I know no man after the flesh. It's not looking after somebody, what they are by their human ability. It's what they are by the Holy Spirit. And I honor and I value and I esteem and I receive the grace and the anointing of the Spirit that is on your life because I require you as much as you require me. So, this is what we're about to do. We're about to break bread, drink wine. And I'm saying, this is not just a symbol. This is a reality in the spirit world. This is affirming our covenant, our laid down lives. In this house, we are real. But we also make mistakes. And when we do, we make sure we say sorry. We give second chances to anyone. And we also have lots of fun. In this house, we definitely forgive. We also do loud. We give the best hugs. We are family. And in this house, that means we, we love. love.